0: by the way, everyone, I'm, I'm chronically ill. I can't do what I wanted to do. I've got some challenges coming up. Um, this is who I am. And um, so people were quite shocked. So when, it, when people would find out, people would say flippantly to me, do you need a kidney? And I, I counted 11. <laughs> I, had, I had 11 people and some of them are very dear to me, don't get me wrong, like the, the people that I, I, I love and care about. But but
1: like it's I'll buy your coffee kind of deal. <laughs> it, was,
0: it was it was a bit like that. So the best yeah. and warmest of intentions, which of course, you they, take out yeah, of it, and, yeah. and it you, is
1: beautiful intent,
0: and you love them for that. But it would often finish with, oh, you know, just let me know. And like you said, it's not like saying, uh, look, oh, I, how about that kidney? <laughs> yeah, it's exactly right. So <laughs> hey, you know, two months later, yeah, I'm really struggling. Can you yeah, pass us that vital yeah. organ? Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, I'm happy to throw that out. Yeah. Sick, ready to go, huh? That's <coughs> us Sweet, so test, 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 volumes are all good, fantastic. Stephen, welcome, I really appreciate you taking the time to meet with us today. So currently you're the general manager of consumer business and marketing at Port Adelaide Football Club, but... There's a bigger story. There's something that I think needs sharing and it's not really where I want to start. So for a long time now, you've known that you've been battling a chronic illness uh, called polycystic kidney disease, which is short for PKD, which is a genetic disorder that causes fluid uh, in the cysts, right? Yep. And it's a chronic disease that basically reduces the kidney function over time and leads to kidney failure if you don't do anything about it. That's right. That's mm. right. So part of that was going through dialysis, which is a cleaning process of the kidneys to help you, I guess, function so that you all maybe have like a tie-over strategy to find a transplant in the meantime. Yep. Um, so you're going through that three times a week pretty intense period. I'm sure that would have been very heavy on the body and the mind doing that each week. And from there, you've received a kidney transplant from someone close to you. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to talk about how this came about and how the transplant has changed your life and just anything around that journey.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you. Like, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, yeah, look, I, I inherited... A, a disease um, from my maternal side um, called polycystic kidneys, as you say, PKD, um, which I found out that I had when I was around twenty, just through a, a scan um, that my my mum prompted, um, thinking that it could be a possibility. And I guess up until that point, you're feeling pretty invincible and and not thinking that it's possible. Um, so I sort of I approached it just ticking a box, and and as it turned out. Um, had the scan and and um, the note that was handed to me just said consistent with uh, PKD. So that was a real shock to the system and I, I, I think really what the biggest shock was this suddenly like it felt like my mortality was just facing me, like looking at me and because no, I knew nothing about it. I had no context. I had um, no real benchmark um, to work from. So, yeah, I, I was just riddled with fear and um, that – that took me a long time to work through i think you know as a as a young person and and then even as i got older um it was always there it was always this feeling of um knowing it was approaching it was like this pending doom in my mind and i'd, I'd, I'd put it away for six months i'd put it away for three months whatever and then i'd go and see my doctor again and that would they'd remind me you know you can't do anything about this so I'd ask lots of questions, I'd be asking about food, I'd ask about surely lifestyle. Surely it's a way, surely it's a way to get out of this. And, and you know, I think that gets to, to the, the biggest challenge was just releasing control. And that took me a long, long time um, to do that. And, you know, even up to the point of transplant, you're just clinging for control of your life and some aspect of this disease. But, um, yeah, look, as I, as I sort of approached my 40s, I could I could certainly feel my health deteriorating, and and a lot of it was initially through fatigue, and um, I just felt tired all the time. And you're trying to work out is it because I've got kids, I've got a job, I'm busy, and life's hectic. Um, but then starting to really pay closer attention to my bloods and to my um, kidney results, I could I could see what was happening, and the writing was on the wall. And um, in my mind, I always thought that was going to happen in my 50s, my kidney failure, and a bit later on, like, I had some relatives. But, no, this one was coming much earlier. Um, so, again, I think for me it was accepting that, um, yeah, my journey's not going to be the same as the family and those close to me. It's going to be my own journey. Kids are at a different phase of their life. My career's at a different phase. And um, I really had no choice <laughs> but to stare it down. And, um, yeah, so I, I started um, – dialysis um when i was um, 42 and um and that as you say included three times a week um, of going to a clinic and it was was quite a nice place um and sitting through dialysis which was um which was really difficult there wasn't a lot of um preparation and um education i think going into that moment um it was really just you're going to need dialysis you need your blood cleaned um go here three times a week and and it's pretty. It's a pretty full procedure. It's uh, it's about four hours. You've wow. got two uh, nail-like needles into your arm, and um, and out of one needle comes the the dirty blood goes into the machine, washes it, and brings back clean blood. Oh wow, that's intense. Yeah. So very intense. Yeah, and um, and even just cold, <laughs> like you're freezing cold. They um, the the blood that goes back in is at a much lower temperature. Um, it's um, you're literally physically trapped there because you can't move. You're, you're on the needle, so you're really just caught in your uh, in your own head at mm. that point.
1: So I've that was a heavy reflection period all through that time, getting dialysis three times a week, and really having that time to just stop and think about what's actually going on and, and how it's affecting your life.
0: Yeah, yeah, you, you you're forced into that. You, you can try to ignore it with a few podcasts, and you can ignore it with a few um, few TV shows or, or something, but but you'd always come back to it, and there, there's multiple moments. Whether the moment is waking up, the alarm goes really early. I had early dialysis to try to fit in with work, so I was up at six a.m. and on, on the needle, as we say, by seven. Um, and you know those cold winter mornings, and you, you're just thinking, what you know, when's this going to end? How's it going to play out from here? Um, and then at the same time, trying to stay in the moment, knowing that today I just need the needles. I need my blood cleaned. Like let's let's stay with it. Um, and be present so yeah but it was a lot of reflection time and a lot of it was you know the inner voice working over time trying to battle the the fatigue and the um, the fear Mm. uh, the frustration with you know almost getting yourself into a bit of a warrior mentality of bring it you know let's go what have you got for me today I've got you
1: do you feel like you need to get into that zone that kind of warrior zone to to move
0: through those challenging times yeah, it really helped me cope. It's not it's not um it's not a natural state for me, I think. Like but it um I think when you're up against the wall, you feel like there's no other option because you can't cave. You have to stare it down and walk towards it would be my mindset. They were the words I'd say to myself is bring it, let's go. And and it became in my mind a battle mm. against the illness and Um, and, and for me that, that also was combined with trying to find meaning and purpose and link that like, um, almost at certain times then finding this becomes an opportunity, Mm. you know, this is the midlife crisis. How did you spin
1: that? How did you spin that? And how did you turn it into an opportunity? How were you looking at it as opportunity?
0: Yeah. So the, I think the meaning that I started really connecting to was leading by example for my kids. Especially, I've got two boys. Um, They were seven and nine as I was going through this period, and my wife was working, like pretty much as a single mum to keep the house going because I was such a a useless mess at that time. And and then also, um, I would tell my friends, it's it's not a pity party. I don't want people feeling sorry for me. I um, I just want your support and I want your love. But um, I I thought, you know, there there was purpose to feeling this way. Like this is going to lead to something. This is going to stretch you in ways that you otherwise. Wouldn't be stretched, and it it sounds almost a bit like a faith or something, and it and it kind of was in a way because I, I just felt through through this level of um, trauma, both mentally and physically. If I can if I can get through this, the rewards are going to be huge. Mm-hmm. So stay focused, and and probably what I realised too is that, um, and this is that reflection piece you talk about as you're sitting there, your mind wanders, and and really it was. For me, it was just a, an example of what everyone goes through at some level in their lives. It might not be as extreme as kidney failure, but, but you know, people have to face their stuff every day and it's not always easy. And um, so I guess I tried to set that example of, hey, I'm, I'm sort of working a bit beyond what I thought my limits were. Um, and if someone said that you could do that, the way you did, I wouldn't have believed them because I, I feared that moment for so many years in my life. Um, but once I got there, um, yeah, that that warrior mentality was what was what kept me moving forward.
1: Yeah, I think if you look at it as a whole, it becomes so massive to go, like, how am I going to overcome this huge mountain of an, of an obstacle? But if you can start to just really lock into just day by day, getting in the trenches, being a warrior and, and showing up every single day and giving it an honest crack to move through it and try to extract some meaning, trying to see as an opportunity the mountain starts to become smaller and smaller and, until you're able to start feeling like I'm actually making progress and I'm actually starting to move through this and I'm managing it okay. Is that is that what started to happen as you were moving through it?
0: I think so. I, I think like anything... Um we develop habits, you know, over time and it takes time of of repetition. And, um, you know, sometimes, you know, physically, whether it's fitness or something like that, it can be, it can be difficult to keep those habits going. Um, but I was forced into this. So it was less about, um, you know, physical improvement. Um, it was more about mental toughness and, I was forced into this fear and into this thing that I had to drive myself to. I had to go to it mm. um, every single day or three times a week, but but in between those days, like, try to live a normal life with a different mask on, whether it's work or home. Um, so I think you just form that, that habit mentally and to the point where, um, you know, some days I would, you know, turn up and I was steeled you know, my mind was just in a in a different place, and I was just ready. Like, come on, let's go, because it because it became a habit, and even up until the transplant, um, I didn't feel a great deal of fear by the end. Mm. You know, because you did
1: all the heavy lifting before. Man. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly it. And it's like you got yourself to to the starting line with the right opportunity. So I'd love to hear about the how the transplant came about and um, who actually gave you. That transplant because that's a that's a really cool story in itself this is just a quick note on our podcast sponsor this podcast would not be possible without the support from 4rt they are a creative house that helps businesses with their advertising marketing and content needs if your business has a story to tell then these guys can really help you with that story and through ata they've helped us massively and we trust these guys dearly and we feel like they're the best in the business so they could add a lot of value to your marketing and advertising needs
0: yeah, it, it's pretty wild. And the timing of it was, was amazing. Um, so the week that I was about to start dialysis, I received a text or uh, a, a message from my from my first cousin, Sally. And um, Sal and I, um, you know, we all grew up close as cousins on, on that side of the family. Um, there's about eight of us and we used to hang out every you know, every holidays and so forth. Sally was a few years younger than me and, and as we sort of got older, you know, our values are very similar. So it was always just a pleasure catching up with her and seeing her. And we wouldn't catch up for a little while and then we'd, you know, we'd catch up and, and it would be a big warm hug, you know, genuine, how are you going? How's life? How are the kids? So we had we always had a really lovely relationship and and then yeah, she sent me this text message and, and it basically said, um yeah, I I understand you're you're unwell and you're up against it at the moment and Rob, her husband, um, Rob and I have been thinking of you. So that in itself, you know, gives you a lot of strength um, out of nowhere. And then um, and she said, I'm not sure what the process is, but if it's a matter of getting a kidney, I want you to know I'll give you one. And I'm like, geez. That's a huge
1: thing (laughs) to say. So (laughs) So how do you even take that at that
0: point? So I I definitely sat in that because – I felt like with my kidney disease, I didn't talk about it with anyone for, for most of my life and it, as, as weird as it might sound, it was almost a coming out process of, by the way, everyone, I'm, I'm chronically ill, I can't do what I wanted to do, I've got some challenges coming up, um, this is who I am. And um, so people were quite shocked. So when, it, when people would find out, people would say flippantly to me, do you need a kidney? <laughs> and I, I counted 11. I had I had eleven people, and some of them are very dear to me. Don't get me wrong; like the, the people that I, I I love and care about, but but
1: like it's I'll buy your coffee kind of deal.
0: It was, it was it was a bit like that. So the best yeah. and warmest of intentions, which of course, you you take out of yeah, it, and yeah. and it you, is
1: beautiful intent,
0: and you love them for that. But it would often finish with, oh, you know, just let me know. And like you said, it's not like saying. Uh, Look, oh,
1: hey, how about that kidney? <laughs> yeah,
0: it's exactly right. So, <laughs> hey, you know, two months later, yeah, I'm really struggling. Can you, yeah, pass us that vital yeah, organ? Cough it up, please. <laughs> oh, so that that became just between myself and my wife a, a bit of a, a bit of an ongoing thing, a bit of light entertainment in some ways because you, you don't want to offend someone. Of course. So the way I would cope with it would be to say you know, that's so beautiful of you and you're such a dear person to me and thank you, thank thanks so much and I'd leave it.
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful way to respond.
0: But when it's your flesh and blood and when it's a cousin and, and knowing Sally like I knew her like I, and and Sally is um, one of the most determined people you've ever met. So her her immediate family will all say once she's made her mind up on anything, you can't change it because she's strongly willed but she's got this a heart the size of Farlap too. So she um, she doesn't just say it for the sake of saying it. She she would have thought about this and considered this. So when I received the message, I knew all that. I had yeah. that context in my head.
1: You knew it was very genuine.
0: 100% I did. And and so I turned to um, my wife, you know, on the couch, I think, at the time and just said, read this. Like, this is nuts. And and we just looked at each other and, and she said, you know, how do you respond? And we sort of talked that over and I, I went back and just said, thanks, you're amazing. And, you know, I hope the families well. <laughs> Again, I was probably trying to pat it off, but don't be crazy. Um, because again, I, I was days off starting dialysis. So I was really in the um, in the headspace of, of of getting ready for that and assuming that in three, two, three years, I might get a donor. And she came back to it again and said, no, 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 I'm serious. Yeah. I'm absolutely serious about this. And and she was so persistent, but just so warm and heartfelt. And um, very quickly that then escalated to, we don't even know if we're the same blood type, let alone whether we match. There's so many things to go through and, but she'd done a lot of this research. So she came prepared. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, within a few days, she was already getting bloods. And she was seeing a doctor. She, she got a, a referral to a nephrologist. She, she was just like- Head on. Head on. Yeah. And meanwhile, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to stay warm at dialysis. You know, like I'm, I'm certainly not allowing myself to get any hopes up.
1: Yeah, of course. But
0: as it unfolded, yeah, we, we turned out to be the same blood type. And over the next six or seven months, um, it was just test after test after test. And we got to a point where they said, no, we think you're a pretty good match. And then a, a few more tests, <laughs> Um, and then it turned out we were basically a sibling match. So, um, they, there's six key markers. That wouldn't happen almost ever. No, no, it's, it's really rare. So my, my mum who transplanted, I think was like a, maybe a three or a four out of six from a, um, from someone who passed away and donated their, their organs. And, um, but yeah, they said the only way you could be a six is if you were twins, but this is the next best. So that. Immediately was like, "Oh shit, we're on." That's like meant to be. <laughs> yeah, yep. Yeah. And and the the text messages and the, the 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 notes that we shared all through that period last year are just unreal to to, to look back and reflect on. Like they just fill with you know go from really practical elements of the process um, to sharing how we feel, you know how how we communicate it to our family how just lots of different factors and but but mainly this thread is just filled with love and um so it wasn't again just the fact that we were a great match it was like someone who i cared so much about and we just became so so close through the process and we got to about a week out and by that time we'd met with our surgeons we'd done absolutely everything and that was the moment where it was like we're on (laughs) we are on here um and uh so she came down from queensland um, and, uh, I think I, I, finished at work on the Monday, had dialysis on the Tuesday morning and by Tuesday afternoon, I was at the Royal Adelaide Hospital and, um, and prepping for that night. And again, I was just lying there so calm. I was just ready. Um, and, uh, the next morning she, um, she came in in the morning. I think she came past my room. I was asleep. So she left me this beautiful note, um, that I woke up to, which was, it was all about, you know, we've got this and... This is meant to be, and all yeah. of that. It's really, really special. And she went in first, and um, I, I kept on all day. I was just asking how 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 how's she going? And then, um, yeah, I think I think they didn't tell me the whole truth. Like, I think her she had some discomfort around her surgery, but the way they obviously are managing your emotions at the time, they're telling me she's fine. She's fine. It's all good. The kidney's fine. But mate, you know, mainly Sally's fine. I didn't really care too much about the kidney. That wasn't my mindset. It was more Sally. Then they rolled me in and, and it, was like, it was like an episode of ER, man. Like it was you, – you, they opened these doors into the theatre and bright lights and suddenly like 10 to 12 people all just turned to you. And it's, it's, it was just surreal. It was just the most surreal moment. And I'm like, here we go. And I was, I was, I was in a really light mood. Like, man, let's just get this on. Yeah. And um had um, you know a nurse on one side just stroking my hand yeah. and just telling me you know you're going to be you made it you're going to be fine and um, then the surgeon he's pretty comfortable in his own skin he's wandering around running the show and um, and then other people just they're all focused on you and it's this moment right there right where you oh you feel like maximum gratitude yeah like yeah, yeah. like it was the most like
1: overwhelmingly just all through the body
0: total like it took over me yeah. And there was there was no other emotion that I could describe in that moment. That thing, all of you are here, trying to give me a second chance. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was that was just a really special moment. I can visualise it so clearly. And then next minute, I could just hear my name, and they were wake me up. And that was that. And <laughs> and uh, and then my first stuff was, "Is Sally okay?" And you know, I'm juiced up. I'm I'm off my face at this time. But um, is Sally okay? Does my wife know? Do my boys know? Mm. Um, does my boss know? Um, does, you know, I love you guys, you know. So it was all just like full loved up, you know, that, that loved up drunk. I was like that for the next three or four hours um, and got a few recordings of, of that time. But, um, again, just it was just out of this world. It was out of this body. Um, and for the next couple of days while I was on, on the meds that I was controlling myself, um, it felt pretty good. And then once they took me off the meds, then the recovery started. And that was brutal.
1: Yeah, okay. Um, in what way brutal?
0: Oh, just pain, discomfort, couldn't walk. Um, I I had some complications. I had a bladder leak that was like a real 13 out of 10 pain. I'd never felt anything like it, like literally took me to my knees. Instant sweats, instant tears. And I was sort of, you know, pretty much rolling around screaming on the bed for two or three hours until my the professor came in and jabbed me with a some pretty intense stuff and, but, you know, you know, as sort of gross as this sounds, but catheters in and out, in and yeah, out, yeah, um, yeah. just trying to get well. So I, in some respects that really took over that, that elation. <laughs> it came, it came yeah, back with listen. a thud, yeah. um, but, uh, but we got there, you know, and, and it was the same mentality. Like I remember in those moments of pain, like real intense pain, more than anything I had at dialysis, I was just in my head thinking, it's temporary, it's temporary, it's going to pass. Remember this moment, remember this moment. So i take these gross selfies of myself in the guts of that pain really just to remember it, mm-hmm. just to remember that moment and to um, be able to reflect on it later on.
1: Yeah, that's such a, such a strong way to move through it, to keep reminding yourself that things in that state are temporary and it's not going to last forever because you can get so stuck in and absolutely melted. Mm. In those moments, if mm. you can't remind yourself that, yeah, I'm absolutely suffering right now, but yeah. this is not forever. It's just this moment and if I can get through this moment and one more and one more after that, it will pass at some point. And,
0: and the, the 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 weird headspace in the guts of that suffering is like, oh, wow, this is even more than I expected. Oh, so there's something on the other side of this even better. It was my mindset. Um, whether that's true or not, I'm not sure. But right now I feel great and I feel healthy, so mm-hmm. yes, there mm-hmm. is. Um, but... I felt like no, nah, no. Nah, there's there's a learning here. There's a learning here, and that would that would almost just just get me through it. That was my purpose and meaning through those moments of really really intense pain. Mm-hmm. Was trying to not not ignore it, but feel it, own it, but but make meaning of it and understand that there's a reason for this. Mm-hmm. You might not know it. You'll figure it out later on.
1: Yeah. What, what were some of those learnings? What were some of those lessons you started to really extract? Maybe looking looking back with a bit of
0: hindsight now? I do remember, like, at the height of the worst pain, thinking, oh, wow, nothing else really matters except for your family, except for feeling love. Like, it became this really simple thought Mm. of, like, right now there is, like, the world's going around, right? Like, work's busy. Down at, you know, they're still flat out. There's other stuff going on. People are driving past the hospital in their day, yet here I am right now in this, you know, and it made me feel um it just gave me i don't know how it made me feel other than it just gave me a different perspective i think and and now as cliche as it sounds not to sweat the small stuff mm. it, it it's not as simple as that it's just um it's been grateful for for the little things and it and it's about um being you know more empathetic to those who might be suffering too in that moment that i had mm. that maybe I'm not aware of. Um, They're they're the two kind of things that I've been thinking about more and more lately.
1: Yeah, the gratitude one is huge. I think once you experience something really heavy like that, it it does give you an overwhelming sense of appreciation and reverence for life that you might not otherwise experience if you haven't gone through that, which is, I guess, in in a weird way, a bit sad sometimes that people have to go through that to experience it. Um, but is that one thing that you observe in others that maybe they haven't experienced something really challenging that stops them from okay. really realising that the small stuff doesn't matter and we just need to have a little bit more gratitude for, for what, what we actually got going on for us?
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, you know, relationships for me during the period where, you know, I was really acutely ill, um, I, I was really just fixed on relationships, like who's there for me, who's not really sensitive to it overly sensitive to it and i'd I'd talk to kate my wife and say you know what's going on with this person what's going on with that person and i would try to break it down and find meaning in all of that as well and um and and i sort of um i felt over time that became the volume on that feeling sort of turned down um i was i was thinking you know they've got they've got stuff going on they're busy they've got lots on um and and also they might not know how to approach this you know this might be too intense for them or
1: yeah that would be a hard one for people
0: yeah yeah and and i i didn't when you're in it you don't think it cuz you you feel your version of normal mm-hmm. um but then equally there were you know there were people in my life who just really went the other way and just came in really tight and just supported kate the boys you know like friends taking my boys out for the day you know that stuff mattered more than necessarily even just a text to me um but yeah I started I started really kind of um searching for connection with people (laughs) Mm -hmm. um whether it was my nurses uh whether it was people um in my life and you'd sort of test the waters with people when you talk to them and some people would then just ask question after question and you're like okay we're on great this is awesome and some people you know obviously um you know didn't know how to relate to it or talk to it and um so yeah I, I found that that period with with people really really quite interesting
1: has that helped you really navigate and understand who's really there for you and and i guess filter out or know straight away when it's when you feel a connection is right with someone and it's right for them to be in your life
0: i think so 100 percent, 100 a
1: superpower for you to actually sense that now <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I think I'm. I think I'm sensitive by nature, yeah. and um, but um, yeah, I, I feel like it, that's heightened because um, yeah, I feel I feel there are definitely people in my life who I've have really connected to through this. There's people that I've met through it, you know, other people globally who who are suffering with kidney disease that. We've connected, you know, online, and there's a there's a guy locally here in Adelaide, um, Scotty, who transplanted a couple of days after me, and just a great guy, and we we sort of share notes all the time. We share numbers on our bloods, and but um, but just a great, regardless of the kidney stuff, just a great guy, great person, and um, and yeah, I, I do think I think there's definitely like this this feeling of those in that inner circle, how special they are, and there, I, there's kind of layers. We've got layers in our lives that mm-hmm. go out to the kind of that outer crust. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, again, I don't feel any resentment, don't get me wrong, but, um, yeah, it was definitely a forced <laughs> filtering process of sorts. Yeah,
1: yeah. So how long did it take you to start to recover and how's the process been since, since the transplant? Like, are you able to function and do everything that you used to do when you were younger now? Yeah. How, where are you at with just your body?
0: Yeah, feeling great. Yeah, I feel really amazing. Still feel tired when I work too much or I'm, you know, I'm burning the candle out and I, I get warned by my, uh, the, you know, my medical crew to say slow down and go easy on yourself, um, which I'm starting to take that advice and, and taking time out guilt-free to just recover or guilt-free to go and watch my kids play sport and be present for them. And so that's, that's helped. Um, but, yeah, physically I... I I'm just ready, I'm sort of in attack mode, like I'm ready for like what's the next challenge, give me something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, d- I don't think I'll, I'm sort of personality that would come out of that and then just sit still and just sit in peace. I, I need to keep charging. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, physically I haven't really had any complications for for a few months. Um, everything's steady, um, feel clear um, and and probably it's, you know, it's, it's the really little things that... Um, that I love hearing like, you know, whether it's just my wife commenting on my (laughs) contribution around the house that that is now back or or whether it's at work and I'm leading something or it's my kids who, um, you know, I'm going to be leveraging this story forever for those boys to try to teach them to face their their stuff head on and um, Mm -hmm. we have those chats as they're getting older more and more.
1: How do they respond well, what, uh, did they understand what was going on through this time and, and yeah. how have you communicated with them on this?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. We we made a decision really early on, Kate and I, that we were just going to go at it um, really honestly and openly with the boys. So um, we sat down um, initially when things were starting to increase, like in terms of symptoms, and, and told the boys that, hey, this is what Dad's got, spoke about it, then drew it, <laughs> And, and tried to explain the science at some some level but then also explain it in a practical way in terms of how it affects their life. So when we go out and kick the footy or when we um, play cricket, like I just don't have the energy. Or when I'm home and you see dad go straight to bed after work, like at five o'clock, six o'clock, mm. it's because of this. Because I It's not because I'm lazy. It's yeah. not because I don't want to hang out. It's just because I can't, like I physically can't.
1: That's so important to, to show them that because then if you didn't, you kind of tiptoe around it, then they might think, Oh, dad doesn't love me and then to yeah. build all these stories around you not being present with them and maybe it builds into resentment later on. If they don't understand what's going on, it would have been really helpful for them to actually go, Oh, like I understand. Yeah. And also build a stronger connection with them through that process.
0: Yeah, like my my youngest boy, he after dialysis, he he um, you know, he's he's full of spirit. And he'd come up to me, and he'd just be like, you know, he'd see the bandage on my arm, and just would very naturally, "How was D?" You know, like trying to be cool. Yeah, how was D that? And I was like, "D was D was sweet, man. Or or, D was really tough today. Why was it tough?" And um, so. You know, they wouldn't necessarily go to school and talk to their mates about it, but we, you know, we would tell them like, you know, dad might be getting a new kidney. You know, this is going to happen, that's going to happen to the point where the trickiest conversations are when they work out what hereditary meant meant was they both will say from time to time, I'm worried that I'm going to have it. Mm. So navigating that is definitely a challenge. But again, in the spirit of being open and honest with the boys, I say, well, you may, you may have it, but, yeah. but, but what you've got now is, you've got an example of a few people in your life, including your dad, who's got through it. And look at me now. Am I okay? Yeah, yeah, you're sweet. Um, so, yeah, I, look, I, I hopefully paved a path for those boys. And um, if they do have it, um, you know, they'll have to work through their own stuff, no doubt, um, I'll, and I'll just be there to support them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And, yeah, you've built the platform for them to actually navigate something like this if it does happen that way for them. Um, I have, I'm, I'm someone that I think I attach meaning and inquiry to a lot of things and I, I really feel that circumstances, events, situations arise for particular reasons and then it's our responsibility to understand what those reasons are. Obviously having PKD is, is a genetic disorder but do you look into the idea that this has happened for a reason or for you? And if so, do you have any understanding as to why that is or why you think this is, is come into your life?
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. Um, I, th- I think it's one of many things that have happened for a reason. Um, you know, my parents broke up at a very uh, – when I was about 12, you know, at a very formative age – Father's battled addiction his whole life. Um, he doesn't have much longer with us um, from, from my job and my career in, um, you know, from having dad sort of pretty well absent to then working my entire career at a football club, which is a hyper-masculine um, environment, you know, that that's not coincidence to me. Um, I think the, the anxiety and the fear um, that I had through my 20s that, you know, was partly because of my disease, was partly maybe my upbringing, partly the way I'm wired, working my way through that, um, trying to learn off other people, you know, other people who around me were my best mate, um, was very ill and, and faced a terminal disease that he got through and being inspired by that and being inspired by his toughness and, and his grit um, so I, I've always been one of these people that will just searches for it, like searches for it in a conversation, searches mm-hmm. for it in a in a in a in a sentence. Like just just tries to cling onto those little bits, and and it's a cumulative effect of all these little learnings and connecting to these little moments or or connecting to people um, that I think has really helped me. And um, so I think a lot of that led to this moment of 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 facing a chronic illness. Um, with, with hopefully you know, with courage was was something that I wanted wanted to do, and um, yeah, I think the meaning for me now um, is a little bit around trying to trying to lead and support others. Um, I, I really think about that as a dad. I think about that as a friend, as a husband. I think about trying to find other young people out there through Kidney Health Australia or somewhere who, who are suffering and trying to be someone they can talk to with lived experience because a lot of people with kidney disease are old. Yes. Like, um, yeah. So there's not a lot of young people in the system that you come across. Um, yeah, it, it certainly has um, shifted that, but it's also, I think, reinforced um, reinforced or it's maybe drawn a deeper connection almost to myself, like having trust in myself trust in my own feelings, trust in my own strength, mm-hmm. not putting limits on myself because I probably didn't. I think, you know, I've got a limit. I'm not going to be able to deal with that. Where well, now I'm like, nah, I smashed through that limit. Like, mm-hmm. So I can apply that thinking to something else in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and I also, you know, again, whether it's like a faith or whether it's a, um, just trusting life that um, through great pain can lead to great great reward. And um, that those those times, then you know, when you're in, when you're consciously thinking about that, the low points then don't get quite as low.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. How are you how are you then applying that to other things, or how do you tangibly feel that things are different post illness?
0: Uh, I th- I think I'm tougher. Yeah, yeah. I think I've got clearer boundaries in my life. Um, got a real sense of what's right and what's wrong mm. yeah I have a real i've got a really strong feeling about that and um that probably applies to to people it applies to work it applies to lots of different things um and even just um i said cer- i certainly have a have a different perspective on on little things that used to bug me mm. that like and that's uh, I know that just sounds like it's such an easy thing to say, but yeah. it has been a shift. But I think the boundaries are probably the number one. Yeah, yeah. can you explain that a
1: little bit more? Because I think a lot of people struggle with boundaries. What have you started to, to I guess, really realise and, and enforce boundaries in your life?
0: It works two ways. I think with certain people and certain moments in your life, you actually have to release and and, and effectively open those boundaries out, let people in, let moments in. And learn from them, feel them, celebrate them, reflect on them, whatever, whatever it might be. On the other side of that, don't suffer fools, <laughs> don't be taken for granted, um, don't be walked over, and spend your time wisely. Those sorts of things, I think, for me, are really, really important now. And um, and and it's not so much of a, an emotional response to that. It's it's actually quite um it's quite a logical thing in my mind mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like no that's just not that's just not how I'm going to be treated or that's not that doesn't feel good how i that conversation ended with someone so i need to talk to them
1: mm-hmm.
0: or it, there's just an awareness around that for me
1: so many people are scared to have that sort of conversation though is is it just the courage of and i guess the pain that you've been through that helps you feel like that's not an issue to just have the conversation with someone if you feel like it's ended on bad terms or something to address?
0: Yeah, I think so because I think it, with the right intentions, it can only lead to good. As uncomfortable as it might feel, it will lead to something. Or if it doesn't lead to that, at least you know. Mm. Um, and those boundaries are also with yourself in terms of where you're spending your time and, and what you're spending your your time thinking about. Like, does that actually really matter? And, um, I, you know, most of my life have been quite emotional responses and I still... I still default to that, and I, I think it's a strength. I don't think it's a bad thing, um, but it, it it's just like this different filter that your mind goes through to get to an outcome, and whether that outcome is a, a better conversation, a better relationship, um, a better day, a better meeting, whatever, then I think that filter helps.
1: But I guess on the on the same token, it would have helped you realize maybe who's not meant to be in your life straight away when you when you put up that boundary, um, and I think. You know straight away whether you actually want them around or not, and that would have been really, really clear at that time.
0: Yeah, and and you know you might still want them around because you care about them and you still feel for them and love them, and in, but it it's not at the level you maybe thought it was. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Or and again, vice versa, people who um, who you liked, but then just when when you were down on the canvas, were there just to support, and then just you know became even more important to you Mm
1: -hmm. I mean you started telling people around your close circle and you obviously told people at work how did you go about navigating the work environment and then telling people about your illness and how did people respond
0: yeah it was it was definitely something I thought about for a long time and um, I'd mentioned it a couple of times at work in passing and um not that it didn't get traction because I wasn't after it. I just don't think people understood what it meant. So it got to the point where yeah, I was I was really starting to struggle um, physically. I was just I was quite bloated because these kidneys are huge. So I looked like I had a big beer belly, you know. And women with polycystic kidneys of all ages get asked if they're pregnant, like it's that sort of shape. So I'd really bloated out. I was conscious of what I what I looked like and um. Part of me almost wanted to explain that a bit as well, as vain as that sounds, but- That's but so it, fair. It's like, I'm not fat. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, it's this disease. Yeah, you know, I'm not drinking beers every yeah. single night. In fact, I haven't drunk in six months, but I'm, I've got these two massive three kilo kidneys in me. Um, but I, I had, there was some close confidants at work um, very, very early who would just encourage me. And they'd just very quietly come up to me and say, Are you okay? And, and that was enough. And, they, and it was just a knowing look. It was just a, they had my back. Or well, they'd say, just go, you've got to go home. And I also had um, uh, one of my closest colleagues um, and and friends, she, um, we worked very closely together and she saw me have a couple of breakdowns where it's just too much. And I was just overwhelmed. I was freaking out and and broke down at work. And, you know, she, so she would support me and help me and I'd have to explain that. But... One of the one of the bigger conversations I had was with our CEO at Port um, Matt Richardson, who's a who's a great mate as well, and just told him that this is the outlook. It's um, it's always been there, but now we're getting to the pointy end, and and I was just shit scared. What does it mean for work? You know, I'm thinking mortgage, I'm thinking yeah, of
1: course,
0: like all practical stuff. And he was he just took he just. Like took all the fear away in like one th- one sort of sentence, and he said, "No, no, 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 don't worry about any of that. It's it's about you. It's about your family. It's about your health, and we're going to support you the whole way." And that was it. Simple as that. There was no other big big conversation or discussion, pretty much at all after that point. But he had my back, and me knowing that he had my back was um, was so special, and just just took the weight of the world off my shoulders. Um, so that was that was definitely a big moment, and I think slowly it started to trickle out a bit, and then once I started dialysis, um, I didn't have a moment of sorts in front of all of my colleagues and say, "Hey, guys, you know, let me tell you about kidney disease." But people would see me come in late um, and I'd have bandages on my arms or I'd, my color was off. Um, I, I was losing weight I, I, I certainly didn't look the best version of myself and and it sort of picked up, and then and people were just then kind asking how it's going, how would it go. So we just had cut out of the video,
1: which we we're working through some technical difficulties. But I just want to tie back into um, your work situation and the cultural values of, of the Port Adelaide Football Club. So from the outside, it seems evident that there is a strong cultural value placed on the club, and is that something that is is instilled behind the scenes and and um, yeah, how, how does that play out for you guys at
0: work? Yeah, I I was a a, a really interesting test case of that, and and for me personally, um, the experience was was really good in terms of you know it's easy to write up on a board a word which might represent your value, but you know when it when it really matters about living the value, mm-hmm. um, you learn a lot about the place. For me personally, um, I certainly felt that from, uh, from our CEO, from, from Richo. Um, and then that filtered down through the business. So I I was effectively working part-time, um, trying to manage dialysis. So, um, I would, I'm a leader at, at the club. So, uh, and I pride myself on my energy and, and lifting other people up and, and, and that sort of thing. So that took a lot of, a lot out of me to maintain that, um, which I think since, you know, uh, I transplanted. A lot of people actually came up to me and said, "I, I actually didn't realise. Wow, okay." And there was this kind of this this chat, like, "Wow, we had you at you know ten percent kidney function. What's it going to look like now that you've got this new one? Look out." Um, but but really, it was it, it wasn't it wasn't the headline of that. It was actually more um, the appointments. It was more the um, the fact that um, I, I spent so much time out with dialysis. It was the emotional toll that, you know, how are you going? Well, actually, I'm not going that great. I'm struggling. Um, but um, I lent on the club and the community of the club and the people at the club um, working in, in sport, any sport at any scale, um, whether it's a small community club or if it's a professional club at a national s- scale, um, you know, you, you rely on each other. You know, you, you, you work hard, you do all that. Uh, you, you, you give something but then you have to give more. And then, when you've given all you think you have to the <laughs> to a job like that, then you have to give a little bit more too. And look, we're not saving lives; don't get me wrong. But but we just care a lot about um, making the club the best it can be. We we talk a lot about leave when you eventually leave, um, leaving it in a better place than you got it. And that right now we're just te- you know temporary custodians of the place. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, the focus of that becomes the community and the people and the passion of and the sacrifice that. Our fans have towards their football club, so that's a double-edged sword. That's like when when you're up, particularly at Port Adelaide, there is nothing like it. Mm. It is just we're all, you know, we 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 have a bit of a strut about us, where um, you know we um, definitely we, a swagger. There's definitely a swagger. Now the the other side of that is the expectations are really high mm. at Port, and so they should be. Um, and we talk about embracing it. That expectation, but it means when you're not living up to those expectations that we talk about, that our fans live and breathe and have for many, many generations, um, people feel really hurt. It's personal. It's not just a. It's just not a game of footy, and it's just it's not a. So club.
1: huge for some people, they live and breathe, and it's their life.
0: They do, and and in their in their value system, you know, we meet a lot of people who might not have a family structure to lean on, or they might they they uh, might have other things. Um, disadvantages in their life or and Port Adelaide is what they rely on yeah. that's their constant it's a religion it's a, it is yeah, it's yeah. absolutely that and when you walk into the place it's all consuming so even coming back post transplant for me you know that was i had 3 months off um, certainly had a different perspective on life it's fe- feeling clear and lots of people saying to me you know just just ease back into it but it's just not that sort of environment you know i came back in february in the preseason and and you just straight into it and um Personally, I, I, I love that. Like I, I really just thrive off, off that energy. Um, we do try to stay calm the best we can. You know, we do try to find, you know, make the lows not too dramatic and the, the highs also just, um, you know, keep your emotions in check. But, um, but ultimately we feel like we're serving a community. And, um, and my particular role, um, which is looking after all of our consumer functions of retail, ticketing and membership, we're on the front line with our people. So we um, we pride ourselves on on understanding that sentiment, and you know sometimes it's amazing, and and other times it's um, it's it's not great. And for me personally, though, again I get it. I grew up as a Port Adelaide kid, and I've um, I, I understand what it means to those people. And sometimes I like to say that if I'm meeting with members because I want them to know that yeah. that someone in the club, you know, we, we care. Not just me; we all care about what you're saying.
1: Yeah, that's really refreshing to hear when you hear someone in that sort of role go like, "Yeah, I hear yeah. you. Like, well, I'm in, I'm hurting too, and I want Port to be doing so 100%. well, and, and I'm I'm pushing, I'm pushing. Just just know that we're doing the best best we can here. Yeah, yeah. And it's not like we're just sitting here, sitting here and twiddling our thumbs. Right? No,
0: and the, and the care um, that people don't see, um, we don't talk about it. Like, mm. we don't. Um, there's, there's obviously there's cases and, and instances where it might be public and we might be supporting a player going through a really difficult period of their life or, um, or, or whatever. But, um, you know, inside the walls, my lived experience from all aspects of the footy club was that um, people rallied around me mm. and, and people um, were just so invested in me getting better. And um, that to me is what the spirit of that place is. And, and I'm not sure it would have been the case in in, in different organisations. Mm-hmm. I
1: guess so many people wouldn't even know what goes on behind the scenes. Like with the business side and the marketing side of a football club, what, what actually does it involve and, and what is your role or what does your day look like?
0: Yeah, so... Um, there, there's sort of a couple of sides to it there's there's certainly a commercial side that mm-hmm. there is a commercial reality of of working in um, in a professional sporting organization because it's not cheap to to run a football club um, it's not cheap to put a team out and so forth so yeah we, we are certainly trying to um, to to capitalize where we can um, but we we try to do that by adding value yeah. to our fans and at the core of everything we do we do it through this filter of what's best for our fans um, and and sometimes that's difficult to navigate because the AFL's highly, overly regulated. Mm. So we are sometimes forced into situations that we can't control. But look, for me personally, it's, it's exciting. You walk in and you're just so privileged to walk through the doors and to know that your day is about making that footy club better or making fans' experience better. Um, we... Definitely trying to get as many bums on seats at Adelaide Oval for our home games um, we 're trying to feed our um, our supporters fantastic content um, we 're trying to make our footballers and our athletes as accessible as possible um, you know even from a retail perspective um, trying to you know design and and produce products that people want um, and and that can be re- that, hey that can be really fun like mm-hmm. you know we 've just come off a fantastic prison bar campaign. Yeah. We didn't win the showdown, which we which really hurt our club and really hurt our community. Um, but we we certainly um, a- approach the lead up of that of of um, giving our people what they want and making um, you know the prison bar that that sort of um, uh, you know the, the what everything that represents more than just a piece of fabric, but what it represents over generations on the field and off the field within families make them feel proud about that.
1: Yeah, that from the outside that is really evident that Port Adelaide do that very well, just their drive to really connect with their fans and the history of the club as well because there is such a rich history and um, how the Port Adelaide magpies and and how that kind of links into the the Port Adelaide Football Club that's come through the AFL and and just that keeping that tie alive and the history is just, I think from a marketing point of view, it's brilliant.
0: Yeah, it's a balance though. So, yeah, we we – have been accused at times as living in that history and we just want to be seen as honouring and respecting and celebrating that history, absolutely, but, you know, understanding we need to continue to progress. Mm. And and right now it's been close to 20 years since our last flag and um, given our expectations, that's not good enough. Yeah. So so we're working hard to to make that happen and, and make our people proud.
1: Mm-hmm. How do you plan to, to get a flag? Like, Is it like a five-year plan and how do you go about really – as a football club, driving that process to to get one,
0: yeah, well, we have a central strategy at the club um, called chasing greatness, and it's it's really aspirational. So we we definitely put high expectations on on ourselves because there's um, that's what our people expect. So um, we have different pillars within that strategy that cover everything from obviously football, from um, you know achieving hundred thousand members to making our community proud through our community work and. Bringing in partners that make us better and being financially strong, all of these things. So the key for us is to be aligned on that, but also to have a a really big bold vision. You know, we 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 deliberately stretch ourselves to think beyond what we think is possible, um, and that's led by our CEO and 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 all of us in leadership to to kind of uh, to to push our people and to drive our people, um, and we don't always. You know, and we haven't achieved all, everything in that plan, which is a couple of years old now. But um, but we're so hungry. We're so hungry for it. One of the one of the things in our area that we often talk about is uh, in in sort of the member area and the supporter area is that we we certainly um, we want to be there to to guide our people to support them and to make their experience through the Port Adelaide Football Club the best it can possibly be. Um, that's our role is to facilitate it. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's sometimes <laughs> difficult if the team's not performing yeah. because you might do everything right and feel like you're ready to, you know, strike in that moment and, you know, you sell out a showdown and you do those things and then um, if the team doesn't deliver it, it hurts. Um, but we, we have a bit of a 24-hour rule around, you know, you can celebrate or sook for 24 hours and then, you, you know, by the time you come back in on Monday morning, it's all energy, into into the next uh, to the next game or the next big moment for us off field to make sure that we um, again we do our people proud
1: yeah that's really really healthy I mean uh, you guys have been really innovative and one innovation that I'm not sure if any other clubs do this by the way um, and correct me if I'm wrong but the never tear us apart initiative with mm. the game day song that leads up to the first bounce um, is that are you guys the only club that does that in the afl is there anyone else
0: oh there's there's different rituals i I think this particular one we've we've now owned for a period of time um it's something that we're incredibly proud of but but understanding when it happened again we we just we just facilitated the moment so we you know we had this great opportunity going from football park amy stadium down to adelaide oval Mm -hmm. And, and for us, that was just a game changer for our people, you know, better um, public transport infrastructure, better venue, better seats, better view, you name it. The whole thing was um, was was a fresh start, but it was also at this oval where we had a very rich history too. So um, we whilst we had that at, at Amy Stadium at Football Park, we won lots of flags there um, – yeah, there was something a little bit more neutral about Adelaide Oval, um, knowing that we were co-tenants with, with the Crows. Um, so for us, you know, particularly in that first game, we, we, we had, you know, two or three years of planning going into some of those moments. Um, from team entry, um, we, we had a rudimental song um, ready to ready to roll for that. We trialled it the year before, which not a lot of people realised. We trialled it at the finals as a as a team entry moment before the club song, and it, it seemed to resonate. And then um, in the first game, also we we had this idea um, of having a sixty second countdown, which wasn't necessarily new at the time. It had been trialled here and there, but it wasn't a regular fixture. Um, and we decided on that a long way way out that we were going to just hype, um, hype that that moment. And um, we, so we we had the moment in place, and then. Um, one of our team members, um, she found the song. It was around the time where that um, In Excess doco was on because we couldn't just nail the song. Mm. And then um, then Tara uh, McLeod, her name is, um, she um, she came in one day and said, it's never tear us apart. And we all just went, yes. It, it hundred- <laughs> as soon as she said it, you knew. Oh, everyone knew. So we trialled the first verse and then we kind of tweaked it and we ended up on the second, second verse and... Um, and then we just put it there, and, and so it was just it was such a it was such a big moment. But it was this this kind of this collaborative moment that we'd been building up for so long, and that was the icing on the cake.
1: Mm.
0: And um, so then from there we uh, we played it, and at the first game it was a showdown, and we had all the dignitaries there. So we had the you know the SNFL cricket was there. There was government, the two clubs. It was like this coming together. Of um, all these old relationships in in SA sport, and um, Never Terrace Apart played with with the countdown, and it was interpreted as, "Hey, we're all now coming together as a collective, and you know we're going to let resting dogs lie, and you know let's go forward together as as one South Australia." And it hundred percent wasn't that. <laughs> <laughs> it couldn't have been further from that. It was it was mainly reflective of the fact that we were a club that you know we were forced apart when we got an afl license an sa nfl club an afl club and we were operating separately we came back together um as one club and we were during those years there was lots of talk about you know is port adelaide strong enough is it big enough to be able to survive in the afl and so forth and and we absolutely um are and uh so it was more about our fans, but then what we started seeing um, was we started seeing fans um, by week one, week two. two, oh sorry, week two, week three, holding up their, their scarves. And uh, we started noticing it and it started sort of in the cheer squad area. We've got another supporter group, um, the Aberdon crowd, and they were sort of leading it as well. But we pride ourselves um, on never telling our supporters how to support. Mm. So there are some clubs out there that have done that before, you know, having, um, having little workshops for their supporters around the different chants they want to use at games. Um, and it just doesn't work. Cringy. It's gross. <laughs> so we definitely don't that. that. But again, facilitating the moment was instead of then saying, hey, guys, you might have seen this now, hold your scarves up, do this when that comes. All we did is we just started saying like on a Friday night before a Saturday game. Um, 24 hours to go, and we would just show a fan holding up their scarf. Yeah,
1: that's awesome messaging.
0: So we would just just leak it in there and just more and more repetitive um, imagery and and then it just started building and building. And the other thing that happened was people started requesting, can you publish that on YouTube? So can you publish that 60-second moment? And we just refused. We just wouldn't entertain it because we wanted our people to own it and it's theirs, it's not ours. Um, We just put a song up there. An account down, but it, it's our fans, it's our supporters, it's the kind of the true believers that made it happen. But the other thing that happened that day, which was pretty special with the team entry, was you know I don't know if you remember the sun was out, it was just Adelaide perfection. Um, we were chomping at the bit, and uh, it was our home game, which was which was such a um, you know we we're very fortunate to receive that. But by the time rudimental started and uh, not giving in started, which was a bit of an internal mantra that Ken had brought in at the time and that became external, um, everyone just got on their feet and started clapping and then, again, it just happened. Um, so it happens to this day, both of those rituals, and we've, we've just recently extended that team entry ritual to, to connect back to Port Adelaide and the the, um, the wharves and the, the boats and the ocean and those sorts of things. So we've just added another little bit at the front of it and, um, and, look, we, we think generally, and I, I try to say this as humbly as I can and it's not going to sound humble, but, you know, the AFL continue to refer to our match day experience as the best in the league, um, which we're super proud of and we don't take for granted because, it, again, it's our fans that make it that. Um, it would just be made a bit better if we, if we win. <laughs>
1: absolutely that that, would be the next piece of the puzzle but yeah that that comes through really clearly at at Port Adelaide I mean you guys are doing an amazing job of I guess entrenching yourself and having a a culture and a history that's going to last and stand the test of time and it reminds me of um of Liverpool with the you know, you'll never walk alone ritual that they have right? yeah. uh, when the fans are singing and they've got just the full stadium and just, I just get goosebumps.
0: Yeah. It, uh, and it's it's amazing to watch. It's so inspiring, yeah. I um, and, and, look, those influences clearly come through. Mm. And um, as as do everything that we do in sports because a lot of what we've done, all of us have done previously, isn't necessarily original but it's about it resonating with your community And working for your people and um I feel the same um both with that Liverpool moment but I still feel the same with our moment and Mm. I've I've seen it um you know as as much as anyone and uh it still gets the hairs on the back of the neck going and 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 you feel you know you feel invincible at that very moment Mm. and um and you know like we had a moment last week where yeah we couldn't get the job done um in the showdown but um we had vision of a couple of our players coming onto the bench and just as they were coming off, they sort of looked at each other and nudged each other and just looked around. And to know that our supporters have that impact on our players, um, that's the connection we're after. That's awesome. Yeah, that's they're, pretty sweet. They're nudging themselves and going, wow, how good is this? This, this is, is nuts. unreal. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, look, we're, we're proud of it, but, but again, we exist to win flags and, yeah. and premierships, so... Um, all of it's a little diminished if, if you can't back it up on, on field. But, um, you know, hopefully hopefully that's not too far off.
1: Yeah, yeah, Let, let's see. But you're, you're doing your end of the bargain on your side of, of Port Adelaide and, and hopefully uh, the players and the, and the coaching staff, they can get their, their side together and then some special things can happen.
0: Yeah, I th- the, the people we've got at the club um, are fantastic. There's mm. just so much creativity so much talent. There's so much care. We talk a lot about care and connection in the club as as part of our core value system, and that's for each other. Um, so making each other better within the environment and and setting others up for wins. And um, if 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 we're doing that and if we do that in a selfless way, we're going to be better. Mm. Um, and then, but also um, connecting and making our and connecting with and making our community really proud of us. Mm. So if they're not. We um we stew on that and just immediately like we we challenge ourselves daily, like how do we change that? How do we make it better? And you know, our people give us plenty of feedback, which is uh, as they say, is a gift. Um, but but we don't take it lightly. Mm. Yeah. We know it, it's it's their club. Um, so it's up to us to make it better.
1: Well what needs to shift in in the mindset of I guess the collective more from a playing perspective or, or coaching perspective that is going to help drive you guys to to get that premiership that you guys
0: are, are searching for? Yeah, it's a bit of a tough one for me to answer because um, I'm not in, in yeah. and under all of that. Yep. Um, I can answer it as a supporter. Yes, um, supporter. Yeah, Go for it. yeah. so um, I think everyone believes in the people that, you know, the list and the, the, the talent that we have and... It's about executing when it matters. You know, I think that's it. I think in the big moments it's about, um, you know, turning the game our way. It's about capitalising on those opportunities. But, you know, they, they, these, these group of, of people, both in our men's and women's program, again, really care about each other and they really understand the responsibility of what representing this football club means. They care. So when they when they lose it hurts, really deeply hurts. Um, And you know, they they also can't hide themselves from all the scrutiny. That's just that just comes with being a pro athlete. Yeah. Um, but they're always trying to better themselves.
1: Through your experiences, is there a way that that you feel people need to stand up in like a sporting arena? Um I guess I want to tie into some of the experiences you've had because uh, I think about it from a tennis perspective and th- there's definite moments in the match that you, you know you need to stand up and be brave. Is, is there any advice or anything that you kind of draw upon to, to help, um, I guess, athletes to, to really stand up or how they do that in those
0: moments? Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess from my experience, because I, I, um, I'm the furthest thing from an athlete, <laughs> but in terms of my mindset... To me, it, I, I think it's about embracing that moment as an opportunity. So I, I think maybe from what you might have heard, the way that I would consider going up against my illness. And that's how – that that was the mindset. It wasn't going with it. it. For me, it was going up against it. Even if I couldn't control it, it was just – it just helped me cope. Um, but also, like, those moments, those big pressure moments where you feel fear and you feel scared is um, you can train yourself out of that. Like for me, I could. Now, I don't know if, if, if an athlete can do that, but um, I, I feel like those big moments that inevitably, in, inevitably present themselves um, and you, you can't predict when those moments are going to come, but you've got to be ready <laughs> and, um, and I, I say that again through the filter of my illness, not the filter of an athlete. Um, but I think, you know, endeavour and, and courage and effort is also I think um, really translatable between those two things is um, for me I just wanted my family and my friends and people in my circle to see that um, I was having a crack at this that I wasn't just, you know, curled up in a ball in the corner. And people would say to me all the time, it's okay, you know, it's okay to have bad days and that just wasn't my mentality. It's like, no, I don't want to get caught in that. And I just I just wonder whether, you know, in, in high-performance environments anywhere that it's about having that, that mindset of a, attack and not defence, <laughs> mm-hmm. about, you know, knowing that these moments are going to come along, it might come along in a board meeting, it might come along in a, um, you know, on the field, but if you're prepared and you believe in your preparation, um, surely that helps you execute in the moment.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's big. That's really big. I think a lot of people from my observations in a younger generation are struggling to, I guess, believe or stand up in these moments or have the tools to be brave. Um, is that something you, you notice with the younger generation yourself and what sort of advice would you give to them to help them navigate some of the challenges um, that they're facing, especially through just like excess use of social media and society telling them they need to be a certain way, maybe not being able to find their own identity? Um, Is there any kind of piece of advice that you would would help kids with to actually start to stand up and and believe and find out who they are?
0: I think about this a lot with my kids and I think generally speaking – there's an impatience, yes. That that a don't lot of they want, want it now. They want it now. It's immediate. Whether it's career, whether it's my boys expecting something at home, and and it's not asking. It's not wanting. It's it's just an expectation that they're going to get it, and um, that's a really difficult thing to to navigate. It, you, you mentioned self and identity. I I think more time needs to be spent, and whether this isn't. You know, in the education system, this is as parents, this is as someone who is is leading younger people, coaches, um, managers, whatever, is actually spending time to um, interrogate, investigate, be present, trying to get inside the minds of the younger people to find out also what their motivation is. Like, what what are you trying to achieve? Like, what what is the goal? What? It, well, okay, that's great, and that's real. That's a really positive thing and some people might not even have that but then just working out the steps towards that actually trying to break it down where i think um you know the younger (laughs) generalization but a lot of young people are thinking macro and the result and not the process um when i if i get asked about my career journey I, i try to explain to younger people um and talk very deliberately about my failures and talk about moments where I received, like, gut-wrenching feedback um, because they were my big learning moments. And I know that I still know every leader that's ever delivered it. Um, And I say that to my boys as well is, um, you know, whether it's facing a challenging um, moment in their own sport or at school or if, um, uh, you know, in lots of different areas of just being a parent is just trying to explain to the boys, like... um, that you have to be patient. Um, it's not always gonna go your, your own way. Sometimes you're gonna feel great, but that's fleeting. And sometimes you're gonna feel crap and that can also be fleeting. But but generally in life, it's all, all of that is just temporary. Mm. It's gonna come and go. Um, and trying to find a solid base in between, I think is really important. I, I find at work a lot of younger people are, are, are wanting to have a bigger title, earn more money really quickly. Mm. Um, the ones that I think are going to be successful are the ones that are going to be more prepared to listen and learn and seek feedback um, with a with a view and intention to better themselves, are going to be the ones that are going to be resilient enough in the next couple of decades to then lead the next group. Mm. Um, I think if you try to rush that process, you're going to miss so much along the way. Um yeah, that's, for all the parents out there, that's a daily challenge, right, with your kids. But it's something I try to instil into my boys. Mm.
1: Yeah, that, that's amazing. I definitely observe similar things with the t- types of people who want to rush through that process, get a bigger title and maybe not honest with where they're actually at in the process that they have to go through to get to where they wanted to. So want, the, want,
0: the want most, to? sorry to interrupt, the, yeah. like the most learning in all of that, which they don't realise or, or, or maybe don't want to accept or face is is it will be in the grind. Yeah. It'll be in the small stuff. That That's where the gold is going to be. It's not going to be in the big highlight moments. They're, they're great and you work up to them and celebrate them, celebrate your wins great, but it's going to be in the grind where you develop. Um, and, uh, yeah, that that's um, not always an easy, easy thing to walk towards. <laughs> yeah, spot on.
1: How do you instil patience with your boys? I mean, that's such a challenging one that I feel like you said, there's that instant gratification culture, everything at their fingertips you can get answered to almost any question on Google within seconds. So what sort of things do you do to help your boys, I guess, stay patient and humble with the process?
0: Yeah, it's, humility is a big one we talk about and, and that, um, that goes, again, two ways. Like that if you are doing something really well, just, just sit within it, mm-hmm. feel good about yourself and then it gives you something to build from. Or if it doesn't go your way, um, don't fall into a victim mode. Just know that, okay, now now here is an opportunity. Um, in terms of patience, it's a really difficult one. Mm-hmm. I, I find that difficult. I find the two things that, that help it is spending quality time, is, is actually just spending time device-free and doing something together because particularly as a father of two young boys, at, at the age they they just want you. Mm-hmm. They don't want anything else. They just want your time. And once you've got the, their time and their attention and you're, and usually it's something physical, um, but it could be drawing it could be could be other things. Um, that's when I feel like I can get through to them. <laughs> that's when I feel like we can have some deeper chats, often in the car. Um, and it, they might be tidbits because you don't want to take up too much, but that's when we tend to have our our best moments together and when we truly connect is when they're away from all of that. They know that they've got you. You're not thinking about work. You're not thinking about anything else. You're just tuning to them at that moment. That, that to me is... Um, is probably the, the closest thing other than saying, no, you can't have something and, and trying to explain why. Um, and then I, you know, I often try to, you know, get them to or promote to them and prompt them to reflect. Mm-hmm. Is like, is that who you want to be? Is that, like, that behaviour? Is that, like, the sort of behaviour you want to be around mm-hmm. if you were others? Um, and what does that look like? And, and again, sometimes those conversations are, you know, are, are good at bedtime yeah. when we're all kind of just tuned in and, you know, I don't know about you, but I remember those chats with my parents you know, at the end of the day. Mm. Um, and that's when we tend to, I feel like I'm bringing out my dad gold on them, is <laughs> when, um, when we can talk about, you know, stuff they've done really well, a yeah. couple, of, couple of things they can learn, on, uh, learn about and, uh, um, yeah, tend to get a bit of a response then.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, through your journey, you've grown so much. What sort of growth are you seeing in your kids now that you're bringing more dad gold through <laughs> life, life experience that you faced?
0: Oh, look, I, um, we, do, we do reflect on the last few years and, you know, there might be moments, um, you know, even after this I was going to have a hit of tennis with my oldest with my lad and, and they were just things we couldn't do. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll gently remind them. Every now and then, like, remember how tough that was, guys, but we, we got through it. Yeah. So it's not it's not. I, I really try not to use the me or the I. It's like we did this as a group and as a team and look at us now, like we're so much stronger for it. Um, so it's definitely in that. And then it's just about creating experiences, I think, with those boys is um, I think about that so much around, like, how can we create a, a, a new experience? You know, my wife takes them to WOMAD every year and that's such an important ritual for them. Now and they're like the fact that they're in that environment, that live music and creative environments, really good. Then on the flip side, you know they they definitely get um, great access to to their love of football in Port Adelaide um, through me. Um, but you know I I try to value those and talk up those experiences more than things. <laughs> but oh man, it's it's an on it's an ongoing learning for a parent. Like I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves as parents. Um, thinking how you're either going to set them up for life to, um, to, to lead a, a fulfilling, healthy, um, loving life um, and not, not messing them up. <laughs> and, and I think there's a lot of self-doubt as parents that you, that you reflect on around like I could have handled that better, I could have done that better. Um, but it's funny once you start talking about it to, to other parents, I find like a lot of the dads we talk about this and as soon as it comes up everyone just starts nodding when you feel like, you know, this might be just a problem isolated to us or, you know, am I doing it wrong or is, you know, I can't get through to my kid. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we all ha- we all face that doubt. Mm. It's, I can imagine it would
1: be so hard to be a parent and probably one of the most challenging things to guide and feel like you're doing the right thing or not doing the right thing and how to navigate the balance of discipline and love and when to pull back and all of those things I think would be incredibly challenging. But I think you've... Got such a good platform through your experience to raise your boys to be such strong resilient uh fine young men in the future through, through your experience which I think is, is absolutely gold and uh, I think anyone listening to this conversation I think there's so much to tap into in terms of the power of the mind and how to move through challenging obstacles but not by fearing them but to actually face them and and look at them in the eye and, and, and accept them for what they are and, and I think that gives you the power and the strength to at least give it a crack and not die wondering. So I appreciate this, this has been inspiring and um, really just uh, a great listening experience for myself and, and uh, something that I'm going to look back on and listen to um, to extract some gold I think uh, anyone else that listens, I think there's a lot to take away. So appreciate your time, Stephen. Thanks, thanks. a lot for being here. Thanks for having me. Very kind. Cheers, Luke.